Hello, you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Bad Santa. It's just Sarah and me cozying up by the proverbial fireplace to talk about this uh this wild film. <laughs> One quick note about this episode is this conversation about Bad Santa inexplicably took place in the middle of October. So that might put some uh, of our conversation in a little bit more context. If you are new to You Are Good, this is a feelings podcast about movies. We talk about movies, sure, but we talk about how they make us feel. What in them resonates. Uh, we're not a film criticism podcast. There's plenty of those. Uh, we talk about the films critically a lot of the time, but we're really talking about ourselves, about humanity, about relationships, about mental health, etc., etc. And if you don't know what Bad Santa is, let's quickly debrief. Bad Santa is a 2003 American Christmas black comedy film directed by Terry Zwigoff, written by Glenn Ficarra and John Rickwa, and starring Billy Bob Thornton in the title role with a supporting cast of Tony Cox, Lauren Graham, Brett Kelly, Lauren Tom, John Ritter, and Bernie Mac. It was Ritter's last live action film appearance. And we'll get into, uh, we'll get into it momentarily. If you are sometimes like, oh my gosh, I wish uh, this conversation had kept on going. I wish there was more. Just know we talk for quite a bit in these episodes and then we hone it down. We bring it down to just about an hour an episode so that your mind doesn't wander. But if you're the type of person who wants more, we're going to have a longer version of this very episode available for folks who subscribe on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. Uh, you know, sometimes some folks like it longer, so it's going to be over there. And we might do that from time to time from here on out, if that's something you enjoy. Speaking of Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who supports us over there. You get bonus episodes in exchange. In this case, you're going to get this longer episode. You're also going to get an episode between uh, Christmas and New Year's talking about the second half of the second season of In Just Like That, a favorite, I'm not even going to say guilty pleasure, it's just a favorite pleasure of ours that uh, makes us think long and hard about what media is, what it can do, <laughs> what is possible within it, uh, and more. We had a great long conversation about In Just Like That with our producer, Miranda Zickler, who we love so much. And, uh, and yeah, that's coming at you very soon. So if that's something that you're into, stay tuned over in those spaces. And again, really, thank you to everyone who supports us via the bonus channels. It really makes this whole thing possible. Without you, there'd be no show. How are you doing? We're in the crunch time. Christmas is right around the corner. Uh, Hanukkah has wrapped. New Year's is on its way to us. What's happening? How are you feeling? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? What are you doing? Uh, what's going on in your world? Let us know. We're on various social media channels. You can find us in those places. We'll have links in the show notes. And you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling like it's, uh, it's all too much, for the time being understood, you are not alone. So if you need company, we're here for you. And don't forget that you, my friend, you are good. You are good will be live at San Francisco Sketchfest. I cannot believe 
that that is a true thing, but it is a true thing. We'll be live at San Francisco Sketch Fest. Somebody asked what movie we're covering. I don't know yet, but we will have Chelsea Weber Smith of American Hysteria with us. It's going to be fun. It's in early February. You can find a link to tickets in the show notes. So in this episode, we talk a bit about the 9-11 era, and uh, you'll hear some echoes uh, that sound familiar with regard to everything that is going on now. If you are a person who, like me, is looking to get involved in ceasefire and peace actions, uh, see the folks at Jewish Voice for Peace. They've got actions going on throughout the country on a moderately regular basis, as far as I can tell. These are actions that are often affiliated with the folks uh, not in our name. If you're looking to get involved... Look those folks up and see what they've got going on in your area. All right, that's it for this week's introduction to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, It's an honor to be able to spend this holiday time with you. It means so much, and I know I already said it, but don't forget, particularly in these stressful times, that you, my friend, are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. I'm Bad Santa. (laughs) (laughs) I'm drinking. I'm puking. I'm fucking. I'm humping. (laughs) I'm humping. Uh, Sarah Marshall. Alex Steed. We are talking about a very special holiday film today. You've brought this movie up in the past, and I've always been like, please don't make me watch Bad Santa. And it turns out that I love Bad Santa, as you always knew would happen. It's funny. um, So when you have a podcast. Yes. If you're like us, and I know we are. you, (laughs) You know what it's like to have a podcast around holiday season. Yes. Where people are like, do holiday movies, and then you do. And then once you've been around, this is our fourth Christmas season that we've been around. Is it? It is. Yeah. Wow. Where are our degrees? <laughs> you get to a point where you really got to just find whatever's available. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. like, There's probably like 10 really good Christmas movies that we should cover. But I don't think there's more than that. Like, I don't... The thing about Christmas movies... Here's the thing. With Halloween media, you will never run out of stuff. You will never run out of scary to creepy to spooky media. There's just so much. It's like this exciting season because you have a limited... You're like in a glass-bottom boat of time going over this beautiful, like, Great Barrier Reef of Mm -hmm. culture and then in christmas (laughs) most stuff just sucks it's different i mean and largely you know because like horror stands alone as a genre so it can make money year round right and it's not a seasonal thing but it's something a lot of us like increase our intake of during a season and there's something really nice about that and i maybe we should expand christmas media to be about like I mean, we kind of do this in November. We do movies that are about family, and that's kind mm-hmm. of what this period is about. But like Christmas movies are often so married to like this fairly hollow concept of like the one time of year when we are forced to spend an incredible amount of money and also remember to love each other in a way we'll never define. And like, <laughs> you know, a lot of them are just terrible. <laughs> And so so for all of this said, all of this hedging and caveat offering said, Bad Santa has an incredible amount of heart. 
It does. <laughs> it has an incredible amount of heart. It has exactly, I feel like, the right amount of redemption and character turn. The most believable amount for someone who starts so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, B- Bad Santa was supposed to be a Coen Brothers movie. Which is really funny. <laughs> Which is so funny. They wanted to make a movie that was like the Bad News Bears, mm-hmm. but Santa. And and it's funny, too, because Billy Bob Thornton is in the Bad News Bears remake. So like oh, yeah. Billy Bob Thornton is in the imagination, the public imagination for if you were going to do a Walter Matthau and the Bad News Bears tradition. But yeah, this was supposed to be a, a Coen Brothers movie. There was difficulty selling it because of the content of the movie. It makes sense. It's like Watership Down. It's something, it's a topic that's often aimed at children and yet really isn't this time. <laughs> and it was, it the reason why it was difficult to sell was it was like, I think univer, it was Universal that turned it down. Uh, they turned it down because it was like, in their words, the most like sacrilegious, misogynist, et cetera movie that they had come across anti-Christmas particularly for a Christmas movie yeah and who came along to redeem it finding all of those (sighs) things qualities and Uh not not off-putting elements was Harvey Weinstein I don't really want to put Harvey Weinstein on the anti-Christmas team I choose to believe that's incidental But yeah, what do we do with that information? I hate that this is the case. Like you can be good at acquisitions in some senses and also a horrific human being in all the other ways. You know, it's pretty it's pretty common. It's a it's business, right? Like a lot of businesses and people are astoundingly bad at this in entertainment, I will tell you and will always be the first to tell you it's understanding what the public has responded to in the past and using that to sort of synthesize an idea of what they want in the future. And you can be perceptive in that way. And that doesn't conflict at all with, you know, everything else you've done. Yes, agreed. And so we have helming the movie is Terry Zwigoff, Zwigoff, who directed Crumb, which I love, a documentary about Robert Crumb, Mm -hmm. and Ghost World, which I also love. I feel like it's a a movie probably beloved by many of the people who listen to this show. I like it. You will like it. And then he made this movie based on the script that was written for the Coens that also includes a bunch of like Cohen contributed jokes, but I don't know which are which because they are not credited mm-hmm. by the time it comes it comes through to him. He makes the movie being like very committed to the idea that he wants for there to be a redemption turn, but the redemption to happen at the very, very end, like not, mm-hmm. you know, don't make something that's like very Hollywoody. It doesn't do especially well in screenings. And Miramax has Todd Phillips, who made Hmm. Road Trip and The Hangover and... Joker, famously, at this point, which is such a weird trajectory. That's a whole other... We're never... I don't want to do a Joker episode, but maybe it would be interesting. But I do not want to, though. As long as everyone knows I don't want to do it. They had him shoot scenes so that we get to some of the character turns earlier so that Mm. Billy Bob Thornton is redeemable earlier in the movie than he was originally. All of that said, yeah, this is like an interesting Franken film that has many things that we can and will talk about that I find even still with everything that feels very much from 2003 has a Bad News Bears amount of heart in it. It really does. And I ha- and I remember when this movie came out and I felt like it, it came out and sort of there was a concept at the time of like the frat pack comedy, which I think yeah. is a term we've all mostly forgotten. Yeah, totally. And 
I want to take us back to 2003. That's important. Yeah. Because 2001, famously, is the year that Ocean's Eleven comes out. And also uh, September 11th, which is something that now there's a whole crop of young adults who, you know, people are walking around today who are like 25 years old and who have no memory of Mm 9-11. And that's nice in a way. I don't think remembering it is essential to any part of the human or American experience. But what I think is important to kind of remember as a part of history is that September 11th was this unspeakable tragedy that the United States used as a reason to commit infinity more unspeakable tragedies elsewhere, particularly the Middle East, and to, you know, use as an excuse to involve us in an unrelated war that allowed the Bush administration to come into full blossom as a kleptocracy. Mm -hmm. And 2003 was right in the fillet of that. This is when you would be driving in the car and you would hear Alan Jackson's Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning, which was best parodied in South Park's Where Were You When They Built the Ladder to Heaven. (laughs) Did it make you feel like crying? Or did you think it was kind of gay? I believe in the ladder to heaven. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 9-11. 9-11. I said 9-11, 9-11, 9-11. And just on and on. And that's what the culture was. And it, it felt like we were living in this time of staggering and intentional stupidity where everyone in Washington, not like now, where a lot of them seem to be genuinely crazy. Mm-hmm. At that point, we're all playing this very self-aware smirking charade to embrace a mentality that would allow them to profit off of an endless war that's my read of it tell me your thoughts you were a, a grown-up then yeah that's it I, and and uh, you're a baby grown-up i was new to being a grown-up when 9-11 happened I, i've said this in the show before but i was so new to being a grown-up that my father called and he said when they call you join the navy because he was he just assumed that we were going to Ivan at niage yeah bring back the draft and i would have to go yeah i think that that was that was it and then my my take immediately in a way that I can't even quite I've been thinking about it a lot lately because of uh, so many parallels with what's going on in Israel and Palestine. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been a lot of conversation about sort of it feeling like uh, 9-11 here with regard to the size of the attack and then sort of the way that the government has responded there. I've been so I've been thinking a lot about it because it's it's brought us back. And I don't know why, like even just like at 18, I was like, there isn't a great solution here because kids know, you know, kids know things. Well, I remember my family who is like all theor- a lot of my family is like theoretically at least like Boston Democrats, which mm-hmm. doesn't really mean a whole lot. But like it, it means that you at least what does that mean? You at least have like labor progressive values, but still mm-hmm. want to murder people sometimes. Right. And I remember them being like, we have to do something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, but right. there's and I just remember being like, there's nothing. Do something. The cardinal law. There's a yeah, yeah, exactly. There's nothing that won't lead to further escalation or creating a new generation of people who are going to want to do the same thing that just happened. And look at that. We did it. We really accomplished that. And yeah, and it it felt like the government was capitalizing on this feeling of we have to do something. Right. And because, and seeing a lot of this again, because we collectively don't know what to do with pain. Yeah. We just stuff it way. You fold it up and you fold it up the maximum number of times and you stuff it way down 
inside yourself and then you accidentally murder someone at a Patriots game. I guess people don't fight at football games. They fight at <laughs> baseball games, right? Why is that? <laughs> to your point, though, about what you were saying about the politicians, that whole experience for me, just seeing that unfold over the course of years and just being like, this isn't going to, we know this isn't going to be good. Why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. We know this isn't going to be good. That made me, I'm realizing, especially now, <laughs> it made me extremely reluctant to grieve publicly about things mm. because I'm like, that's going to be weaponized against us somehow. Right. Like that grief is going to be used to like sell a war. Yeah. Or that grief is going to be used to put more cops in a payroll who at the end of this movie will shoot Sam in the back or like that grief is going to be used against me. And so. Yeah. God. Yeah. So when people are like, you know, we have to just or we have to say something or how do you feel or what's your position on this? I'm like, guys, I'm cautious. Yeah. Not because I think I think the right or wrong thing, but because when I was 18 years old, I saw a bunch of people's rightful, terrible, horrendous, scary grief put into a bank. And out of that bank just came like like bombs and bad policy. Yes. And it never has ended. You know, and just the fact that it just felt so profoundly cynical and knowing on the part of the people doing it. Again, not George Bush, who didn't seem to know anything, but he was a friend for sort of a massive cartel, you know, and that's a complicated yeah. moral inheritance and we can weigh it however we like. I don't know how to feel about his little dog paintings, but I, I support whatever you think, probably. <laughs> What's uh, Bad Santa about? Okay, so, <laughs> and I guess to add to all that, like 2003, relatedly. Oh, yeah, yeah, we were setting the table for 2003. It was a big table. So 2003, relatedly, was also this golden age for like horrible, crass, unfunny, in my opinion, comedies usually involving Will Ferrell, like old school, sure. which I hated, yeah. and Step Brothers many years yep. later which I hated. And I remember watching Step Brothers as like a cranky old man in the body of a smoking 20 year old. And the part where they had like the fake testicles that they were running around with. I was like, I think I'm done with movies from now. I think I'm just done with this with, with today in cinema. I think I'm going to go back in time with my movies. And uh, that explains a lot, actually. So the like frat pack comedies of this period, which like turned me off contemporary cinema, are just like generally about a bunch of men sort of, I don't know, improving their way through about an hour and 45 minutes of scenes and then allegedly kind of learning something. But there's also just like, I don't know. I have I like horror movies. I really like blood and guts, but I really don't like pee pee poo poo fart balls at all very much yeah these were these were movies about about the joke was the man or men mm -hmm. a man or men it was very diverse a man or men were were locked into some form of suspended adolescence they were stuck for whatever reason and then yeah. we saw what appeared to be a like fun and funny comedy of errors that came from that fact and their wives are 
bitches. Yeah, and this is and this is also context for like why bridesmaids ended up being a thing. Right. Was they were like, look, w- it's women feminism. Can be, w- w- women can be stuck too. Yeah, and that's a great movie, <laughs> but you know, I don't like a protracted puke scene, so it's hard for me. Yeah, so like the whole the whole bit for like ten years was the joke is this man is stupid in a particular way, and you see him go through life, but like it's one of those things that we've talked about in recent episodes where, you know, if you don't pay too much attention to the last act of the movie, you can think that mm-hmm. these men are being celebrated for their obtuseness and uh, crassness and whatever. Yeah. Well, and I think different movies open themselves to that read to different degrees, right? Because there really are movies where like the journey is the point. Yes. And guess the thing is that all of our stone movies are not I don't think those movies, those are really movies about how like you can't succeed without watching someone be chainsawed to death. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, in this in these in into your point about bringing up 9-11, like it makes yeah. sense. Like another thing you might not know if you didn't live through the time mm-hmm. is there was literally a censorship camp, like a mm-hmm. corporate censorship campaign that happened at like a radio level, at least, and certainly was happening with regard to determining what movies were getting made and what movies weren't getting made. Yeah, it makes sense culturally that what the response was, was let's watch stupid men. One one man whose career would be partially defined by how well he played George W. Bush. Yes. Let's watch them be stupid and not think about their consequences yeah. uh, a whole lot for years. I remember, I don't know if this was like the theory of the person I was talking to or like an acknowledged phenomenon, but I believe it, that like Zoolander did as well as it did because I think it came out like right at or right after 9-11 and it was exactly what everybody needed. I got to find out when it came out because now I'm fascinated. As part of your 9-11 studies. Zoolander came out. You're right. Yeah. uh, September 28th. Big time. And yeah. So here's my here's my week that week. I saw Zoolander in the theater and then I saw Weezer and Tenacious D play at the Cumberland County Civic Center. And I feel like that was the most cathartic stretch that I, I will ever experience in my entire life. That's like the first movie I watched after COVID hit was uh, the first Wives Club. Similar note. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, uh, Jack Black and and, uh, Kyle Gass came out while Weezer played their finale in Dreams. Uh, and and confetti came down from the roof. And they came out and just danced around in their tidy whities And it was exactly what the people needed. (laughs) Yeah, that's so healing. So what's Bad Santa about? Um, It is about... (laughs) Billy Bob Thornton, we open with him poignantly getting drunk in a bar and then puking. And then we see him at his job. And like one of the things this movie is secretly about is how good our economy used to be, because like he's pissing and puking on the Santa suit and nobody seems to care. Yeah. uh, And by the way, alcoholism is not funny. That's true. But Billy Bob Thornton is funny. So it's complicated. Our character is an alcoholic in this movie. It is not sort of like treated, although the underlying emotional things that might have some resonance with his alcoholism will come up. This is more of like a Charles Bukowski character. Like mm-hmm. he's, not, he's not a real life alcoholic. He is a fake life Charles Bukowski character. So Billy Bob Thornton, he's I would call him like a moderately functioning alcoholic. He The thing is like... 
you kind of wonder like what what is the true meaning of this title or I do and I think it's because that he really is a bad Santa he's bad at his job yeah <laughs> exactly it's like you know the joke just it's you know Santa's supposed to be for kids this one isn't that's the whole thing <laughs> yeah and so what turns out to be going on is that Billy Bob, Bad Santa, and his elf, Marcus, played by Tony Cox. We've seen him in our show on Friday. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Well, that was at the start of our bachelors in movies. I can hardly remember him. Yeah, that was in that was in the first semester of 101. Yeah. And so the two of them uh, have a scheme where after the department stores where they work close up, they burgle them. Because apparently these stores don't have cameras. Like, I don't think security footage ever comes up as a concept. Yeah, this movie assumes that no one is is watching the cameras live. Right. Or that they ever even are like tapes that get reviewed when someone's like, <laughs> hey, who stole all our cash? Right, because this crime duo is a sloppy drunk Santa mm-hmm. and a black little person. Mm-hmm who show up for the same job every year at different stores. Like, I feel like they know even if... Right, the thing is that they're always together. <laughs> even if cameras are not, you know, they have, like... <laughs> once this happens twice, like, I feel like people could compare notes, but it's not happening. But they, but it's okay. And also, you know, and by the same token, you know, Billy Bob is, like, in reality, the the physical toll of what he's doing would be profound um but it's but it's a comedy film so you know yeah he he in one scene he's standing and and the sight gag is we know he's been waiting outside of a door and the door opens and we see that he's surrounded by 10 cans of beer Mm -hmm. and i believe he's been standing there for 15 minutes right we're not dealing with reality here and it's it's a tune and um it is a tune yeah it's a tune (laughs) So they have this scheme. They like show up in different areas. They, you know, do their bad Santa job and then they burgle the department store once they're done with the Santa season. And so a year passes. We learn that Billy Bob is an ass man, which, you know, it's not like Chekhov's ass man. It just sort of is a thing about him. Yep. That's just a defining characteristic. (laughs) And so then he and Marcus go to Phoenix, where they start doing the act again. They get a job at a department store where they meet John Ritter, who's, what is his job in this? Fussy man number one. Yeah, he's the store general manager, I guess. Yeah. And this is one of the last John Ritter roles. And it is the best. Yeah. Like, this movie without John Ritter and Bernie Mac mm-hmm. is not. there's nothing. Talk about that, because you really love them together. They're just the heart of the movie. John Ritter, I can't even describe like what John Ritter's personality is like in this movie. You mm-hmm. pointed out that he's to the point of what's going on with 9-11. He's wearing a, a American flag lapel pin. And mm-hmm. those of us of, of a certain age remember that the way that you let everybody know that you were not against us, you were with us, mm-hmm. was to wear a uh, a little American flag lapel pin. He's like, what, how would you, nebbish? Like, how would you describe the personality of his character he's like an alien who hasn't gotten used to his skin suit (laughs) and he he's very unset he rightfully he's very unsettled by billy bob thornton and his behavior all around and he's trying to get him fired he's so off put about 
anything that is done that's off color and all of his face acting when he is talking about the off color things that are happening is so funny uh in particular in the context of the fact that like as jack in three's company he was a slut like that was his character although you know what's funny is that he was always talking about women but you often didn't see the women yeah (laughs) And it was just really all about like, I'm I'm just so fascinated by Three's Company because it was about how like the true intimacy is between the girl friends. <laughs> and then we have Bernie Mac, who's the head of security, I believe. Mm-hmm. He's the department store dick, which I just love calling a detective a dick. You don't get a lot of that these days. And they're they're just they're dynamic together. I can't quite put my finger on what's so funny about it. Bernie Mac is very confident John Ritter is not very confident in this role. Bernie Beck is always like eating or slurping or sucking on something. There's so many sounds where this guy is extremely off put by like anything that has to do with the body, particularly mm-hmm. carnally. So right. it's funny that he's reporting all this stuff to Bernie Mac when he's like sucking the juice out of an orange slice, slurping on his fingers. Getting a pedicure in one scene. Getting a pedicure in all of his conflicting orders about like how the pedicure should be. He's all of every one of those like tiny details about that character, like how he res- how Bernie Mac's character responds to the pedicure, how he walks, what he sucks on, what he slurps, the way he asks questions, gold. Yeah, I know. And, we, and of course, we lost Bernie Mac way too young as well. And I guess, mm. you know, this is a heart health PSA. Yeah. Do something for heart health. I don't know what you should be doing because I'm not a fucking doctor, but figure it out. Yeah, we, we want you here. Look up heart health and filter out the Nazis. We want you around. Please stick with us. Yeah, like the Ramones said, I want you around. <laughs> okay, yes. So we have, so Bernie Mac and John Ritter have this chemistry we love. And I think it's just that like they're both so present. It feels like they're like really there as scene partners for each yes, other, you know? Definitely. And it's so nice to watch them work together. And it's so fun that you have not just one, but two odd couple duos. That's perfect. Yeah. And so Billy Bob gets a job at this department store. We kind of learn a bit about his life. He likes to boink women whenever he can, which he does just by kind of like voicing his availability, which is really inspirational for all of, you know, anyone who's who's a little anxious about that out there. Just put yourself out there. Pretend you're bad Santa. (laughs) He hooks up with Lauren Graham because she's bartending and she's always had a thing for Santa. She has a Santa fetish. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, Santa is not last on the list of uh, holiday mascots I would have sex with. Um, yeah. And there, are, and I would say my only complaint character wise is we don't know anything about her with the exception of the fact that she has a Santa fetish and um, she loves kids. Yes. Like women do. Yes. What I like about this movie, here's something I have a lot of thoughts about, is like, I remember when Jeff Bridges won the Oscar for Crazy Heart, I was like, really? He's winning an Oscar for that? And like, I haven't seen the movie. It could be amazing. But I have opinions about the continued existence of movies where a guy is like, I'm just a beat up old hound doggy. And then a nice lady's (laughs) like, I'm a nice lady. And he's like... Well, that fixes that because it's like the great myth that like destroys so many women's lives that like the love of a good woman can heal a broken man. And like it can't actually like that's like saying that like 
calories will allow me to bulk up and become a bodybuilder. Like I need them in order to sure. do that. <laughs> There's a lot of other things you need to. <laughs> right. We need love in order to change and grow, but we also need to like try. <laughs> yes. And what these movies forget is the part where you try and like what that involves and what it could possibly look like, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. So I like that she, you know, is she's barely there as a character, but she also is, I think, not put in this position of like explicit heavy lifting and like fixing this guy who she knows hardly anything about. Yeah. No, I I appreciate that as well. And, and we'll talk about this more. But the, you know, like the the whole takeaway of this movie is one that I really like. Like, I think it's a very it's an understandable but dangerous thing to insist that like you must love yourself before you can love other people. And it's mm -hmm. like some people just for a lot of reasons that are yeah. confused but valid mm -hmm. are not able to do that. I think that is somewhat helpful but fundamentally crazy advice. Like, yeah, and I, I understand what I think you think you're saying when you say that, but uh, some people need to understand that they are lovable by way of seeing themselves through the eyes of the people they love first mm -hmm. or through the eyes of like people who care for them. Mm -hmm. And like, that's ultimately the arc of this movie. Mm. And I really appreciate that. Like, I think that that's actually a, that's kind of what a wonderful life is about too, is that it's like being able to see your worth through the eyes of other people through a, through in that case, a magical circumstance. Yeah. And, and all of the people who he loves, uh, who he loves or forms relationships with aren't people who, themselves like again the, the purity of their love isn't what's going to save him it's just the beginning of his ability to like see himself and not abuse himself which we'll talk about in the last scene which i love so much yeah harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save harry <laughs> you're worth it <laughs> stay with us yeah, so that's what this movie is about. And so while he's working as Santa, he also finds a, I can only say live action Bobby Hill, who becomes very attached to him. <laughs> right? It's really true. I never thought of it, but that's so true. He just is Bobby Hill. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. He looks like a human cabbage patch doll. He's perfect. And so he his name, it later turns out, is Thurman Merman. <laughs> his dad is in prison for embezzlement. He's being raised by his grandma, Cloris Leachman. He thinks his dad is on a mountain climbing expedition. <laughs> Just like Hey Arnold's parents, <laughs> I think. Didn't they like to they think go missing right. in the jungle or something? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And... After Billy Bob shows up back at his motel and realizes that the coppers are there, he goes to Thurman Merman's house to live. His grandma doesn't really particularly care. And meanwhile, Bernie Mac realizes what's going on with the plan for the Christmas department store heist. And so he gets Billy Bob and Marcus to cut him in on the deal. And then basically Bad Santa's low point comes when he just like shows up falling down drunk to work and picks a fight with the animals in the manger. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Does he even get fired? <laughs> no, because Bernie Mac needs him to still be there so that he can carry out the right. job and, okay. and Bernie Mac can make money. So he like writes a letter confessing to all of his misdeeds 
for Thurmond to send to the police. And then this is a wonderful scene. He's like sitting in the car in the garage, like in the act of gassing himself. And Thurmond comes in to talk to him in his usual, like sweet and clueless way. And then he's like, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) What the fuck happened to your eye? Right, like, because he, because he, yeah, Thurman has gotten beat up, beaten up by some bullies, mm-hmm. and the next scene, and it cu- it just cuts straight to him beating the shit out of a teenager mm-hmm. who has been harassing and beating up Thurman this entire time. Yeah, and can you talk about the the trajectory for the rest of the movie because there's like a cool twenty two minutes left. Yeah, he basically he's starting to take more of an interest in Thurman and like be available in his life and teach him the things that it is revealed that he it's not ever like directly revealed. He's not like, listen, here's my story. But it's revealed Mm -hmm. that his dad was a was bad. Mm hmm. Bad dad Santa. Yeah, he had a bad Santa's bad dad, bad dad Santa. Uh, He wasn't given a fair shake. He starts to invest in Thurman, showing him how to protect himself. They show up for their job where they're supposed to uh, rip off this safe. He's like, this safe is going to be hard to rip. This is kind of a throwaway thing. I don't know why I'm picking it up. But he's like, I've been told that this safe is impossible to crack. He gets through it finally. It's a triumphant moment for him. It is. It's a he, yeah. He over. It's a little bit of growth. He's a he's a great safe cracker. His partner and his partner's girlfriend have either hurt badly or killed Bernie Mac, mm-hmm. so that he can't get the money or report them. Not to his knowledge, he cracks the safe, and then his partner and his partner's girlfriend are robbing him mm-hmm. because they say that he's gotten too sloppy, and it's their time to go their separate ways. They're going to take his, his partner's girlfriend, the criminally underutilized Lauren Tom, because it is illegal in this country to write a meaningful role for an Asian or Asian American woman. Yes, she's got nothing outside of being referred to at some point as mail order. Yeah. And then the cops come because they've received the letter that Thurman has handed over Thurman by the way earlier has asked only for a stuffed pink elephant Mm -hmm. and the reason why Billy Bob Thornton didn't see that he was going to get robbed coming is after he opens the safe he's like I'll be right back I gotta go get something and he goes and, and gets the elephant comes back with it he gets robbed by them and uh just in time the cops come because they've had that letter that he gave to thurman delivered to them there's a chase he gets away i can't remember exactly what happens with the partner but fortunately he's saved from them he gets back to the neighborhood to deliver the elephant he's running to bring it to the door and a bunch of cops shoot him in the back Yeah, like eight times. And I thought they were going to do the I was wearing a bulletproof vest trick. But no, they did not. No, they just shot him and didn't hit any vital organs. And they they shoot him in front of a bunch of kids. And I love this scene. Like, I love before the whole country is having either a thoughtful or stupid conversation about the police in a real way outside of a Rodney King and Rodney King gets name dropped outside of a Rodney King context 10 years earlier, we get a mainstream Christmas movie in which the cops use excessive force and are referred to as using excessive force. Yeah. And fortunately, he survives. He writes uh, Thurman a letter from prison, I believe, or the hospital. The hospital, yeah. Yeah, he's going to work LOL in sensitivity training for the police to show them how uh, not to get themselves involved in a PR disaster like this next time. Yeah. And uh, oh, and, and finally... 
I like how this works, even though it's it's ludicrous. He explains to the cops that Thurman has been living on his own and sets it up so that Lauren can go and take care of him and his grandmother uh, and, and utilize their jacuzzi. <laughs> yeah, which who knows if she felt like that, but I guess she did. So that's nice. He's like, she likes kids. This is a kid. Nailed it. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. It's a it's not a happily ever after, but it's certainly a happily for now. And I really like I like it a whole lot. Yeah. Because again, like there's a thing that he says to the kid in the letter that really stuck out to me, which is like, don't let anyone give you shit, especially yourself. And Mm -hmm. that to me is like the key message of the movie is like he's his own worst enemy. He gets this Mm -hmm. like really Tony Cox delivers to him. And I can't remember any of the words, but delivers to him a great speech, like in the middle of the movie, explaining Mm -hmm. that like all of these excesses he engages in are essentially barriers between him and being able to feel any feelings or like Mm -hmm. sort of like know what life is actually like. So like his chronic sex, uh, chronic alcohol Mm -hmm. abuse, all of the other stuff, you know, is shielding him from being able to feel any feelings. And as a result, he is the one who's like beating the shit out of himself. Mm -hmm. And he sees this in Thurman and is trying to write the ship for Thurman before it's too late. And that's fucking great. Yeah. It's also, I love that there's a scene where like right after he started to turn things around, he and uh, Lorelai come into Thurman's house and it looks as if Grandma Merman is dead in the living room. And I was like, oh, my God, really? Is this is he going to like become a custodial guardian like the second he does one nice thing? I think she's playing a joke. And like that, mo- I love that reveal in that moment, partly because it was so fun and partly because it feels like, you know, I love it when a, a piece of media uses your understanding of genre to anticipate yes. what you're going to think is happening and be like, no, no, that's not what we're doing. No, I love that. Like this movie is ridiculous in a lot of different ways. It's extremely off color. It is. It's got a lot going on. But it's no more ridiculous to me than like the Santa Claus. Like (laughs) (laughs) he has to learn how to care about anything or anyone more than himself a little bit. This movie warmed my heart a lot more than the Santa Claus, I gotta say. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was so happy when we covered the Santa Claus with Siri and like it's I understand it's a formative and important movie for a lot of people. But like seeing the growth in this movie feels more believable than seeing the growth in the Santa Claus. Yeah. And not just because nobody gets like a CGI beard or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Because like that, I don't know that I like seeing more incremental growth in a movie and like he's still who he is, but he's working on it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny to me that this movie was brought to us by again by Terry Zwigoff, who made who made Crumb in Ghost World, because those are very although Ghost World had a bit of attention when it came out, like those are very like IFC movies. Like those are movies that played mm-hmm. all the time for a very particular God, audience. Ghost World was, I feel like, the IFC movie the year my family got IFC, which was two thousand one. Yeah, I'm sure it must have been it must have been all over that channel at that time. And I think that that's part of why this movie works so well for me is even though it is broad in some ways or in many ways, and even though it was meant to be a Coen Brothers movie, which, you know, they they have their own niche, it still feels appropriately misanthropic. (laughs) In the way only a '90s indie movie could could feel that comes out in the in the 2000s in this case. Well, this movie really feels, the more I think about it, really a lot like Ghost World. You know, where it feels like Enid 
is not that different from Bad Santa. Sure. She doesn't have substance problems, but she's someone who I think is using this like reflexive cynicism and frustration to protect her from any kind of human intimacy. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, she was very much doing a... um... Yeah, well, especially with regard to like appropriation, counter appropriation, right. there was there was a lot of. We'll, I'm sure I I'm shocked that that movie hasn't come up yet, but I'm sure we'll cover that movie. Oh yeah. But the the we talked about recently about Bob Clark doing both Black Christmas and a Christmas Story. I feel like in a way, a person whose cup of tea is an entirely different kind of genre of movie mm-hmm. taking on a Christmas movie makes for a really interesting vibe and feel. Well, yeah. And also that like these kind of darker Christmas movies like like Black Christmas really is a Christmas movie because it's like mm-hmm. saturated with Christmas aesthetic yeah. in a very self-aware way. And it's also like this is a movie about girls who like chose to stay over the break at their sorority, partly because they had stuff going on. Um, sure. And we know that Barb's mom like doesn't want her around and that it's about the sort of you know, aspects of Christmas that aren't depicted enough in movies, which are kind of what becomes of the lonely people. Right. And I think like, you know, another thing that I think consciously or subconsciously that helped contribute to this movie's reception is like for the five to six years after it played on This American Life, like the Santa Land Diaries was Mm. such a huge part of the the culture and sort of Mm -hmm. David Sedaris I think originally published that either alone or in barrel fever as a collection. And then it came out, uh, it came out and was a, was a this American life story. So like the idea of the Christmas story being not just like what happens in the household as a family, but what's happening commercially and like what, what that looks like and what that entire operation looks like, like this, this ends up being about a found family, but this kind of like family has nothing to do with this movie. This is about like how Christmas is presented on the commercial level and like what happens behind the scenes and no one is good. Yeah. Well, Lauren Graham is pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Lauren Lauren Graham is good. Yeah. Lauren Graham. But she's a woman. So (laughs) yeah, she just kind of like unapologetically likes to serve drinks and loves kids and likes to fuck Santa's in parking lots. And that's all great news. I love that. And good for her. Yeah. But like, you know, even the head of security, the, the department store Dick. Yeah. You know, in, in various ways, John Ritter, like these people aren't good. They're just staging Christmas. And this is what happens behind the scenes of the staging of Christmas. Yeah. It's like backstage at the casino. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I also I'm sure that there are various things that people do for this in this day and age. But like I want to know about because I, like so many other kids, would not sit on Santa's lap because it's weird. Yeah. Um. Good good call. (laughs) It's so weird that like adults spend 364 days of the year telling you not to talk to bearded, strange men. And then one day of the year, they want you to do it for a photo. Yeah. And then another day, your uncle comes and they're like, go hug your uncle. And it's like, he smells weird and he's angry. And it's like, fuck no. Yeah. (laughs) If you wouldn't force your child to talk to this person, if they were a stranger, don't make them do it if it's family. It does seem like we've gotten like a little bit better about that overall. And I'm I'm really glad about that. That always fucking weirded me out. That can be your philosophy as a parent without you being treated as a psycho, which is really nice, (laughs) I think. Yeah. And I feel like there must be, but I would love to see more of some like alternatives for the Santa lap situation that aren't so 
overwhelming, both from a stranger danger perspective and from a sensory perspective. Santa typically talks very loud. We need like a quiet Santa. I love for any of the issues with the movie, the Christmas, a Christmas story. I Mm -hmm. love the scene where he visits Santa because it is the perfect sensory emulation of what it's like to be a child seeing Santa. It's terrifying. You see everything through this like zoomed fisheye lens. It's so loud and repetitive. Like you're scared. You have performance anxiety. The elves are nightmarish. Yeah, the elves are nightmarish. You're being rushed through this thing. You have one opportunity to say your piece. It's like you're on the way to Victorian debtor's prison. It never struck me that like Bob, you know, again, like Bob Clark, having made a tremendous horror movie and making that scene a horror scene. Like the scene where Ralphie sits on Santa's lap is horror. Yeah. It's like Billy vision from black Christmas. That's really great. And like, this is like that scene multiplied by a whole movie. (laughs) Right. You know what they should do? They should be like for the sensitive tyke. This is Santa's accountant, Stuart. And then like just a guy named Stuart comes out wearing a nice sweater. And he's like, Oh, hello, young friend. I I hear you're interested in in some sort of a gift. Would you like to tell me your thoughts on the matter? That would be so great. (laughs) And you have to, at the beginning of the line, it's like, is this a Santa kid or is it a Stuart kid? Because we need to figure out which. (laughs) And the line for Stuart is much shorter, too. It's like the single writer line for the Matterhorn. (laughs) I think that, but I think there are a lot of people listening right now who are like, I would have loved a Stuart. And I would love to be a Stuart. Oh, my God. That's right? so good. And connecting with kids on their Stuart level. Yeah. You just get down on the floor. Just crouch there in your in your little cords. <laughs> you're like, so I wonder if you're interested in terrariums. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, I think that that's great. Would you like an Andes mint? you know what else i noticed about this movie that i really appreciate and wanted to point out is that you can see the homage to the bad news bears in many ways and one of them is the incredibly frequent use of music from carmen oh yeah yeah Yeah. you're right which is wonderful that's so great yeah this is i mean this is just the bad news down to the point where you said you know it's a tune and i and that just clicked for me immediately is it's like he does so many things that indicate he's a bad person. There's nothing mm-hmm. like if this were real, like this is just a garbage. Per- like this is not even just a bad person. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is a terrible person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you tally the list of things that we see him doing that are off color uh, or or bad or or use like no sort of moral discretion. Or that there could be like a, a very serious outcome of, but there just isn't because it's not that kind of movie. Yeah. Right. But the whole thing is just the is the comedy of juxtaposition. It's just like, yeah, this later happens with bad grandpa. It's like, see this thing that is a symbol of like American purity, but it's not. It's just a symbol of capitalism in a lot of ways. But is there see any this- connection between bad grandpa and grandma's boy? No, no, there's not. Have you seen it? I haven't seen any of the bad boy movies. And the thing is, like, I'm sure the ones that hit it really big that like they all had some amount of heart, because what I believe about Americans is that like. We secretly value heart more than pretty much anything, you know, aside from the purity of the white race for astonishingly (laughs) many of us. But truly, like in a non-cynical way that like we care about 
being made to feel that like we can turn things around too, and also to be told very gently that we probably should. Right. Well, and also like I think a lot of people think that they are not a person who requires to turn some stuff around and like they're actually like just the fine standard. Mm-hmm. And it's like, nah, like we all <laughs> we all could do some work if we if we really thought about it. And uh it's I like how we have this person who just like offers an example of all the arenas that we all could do some work in. Right. Yeah. And this is, you know, there there's some Christmas Carol qualities to it. And it is really lovely that I think at for all the things Christmas means or has, you know, or can mean, one of the key things about it famously is that it happens like a week before the end of the year when we are all thinking about what kind of a year we have had and what kind of a year we would like to have and how we would like to change and if change is possible for us and that that's part of our ritual. And I really like that we do that. Yeah, I know. I agree. Bat Santa is kind of like my favorite character in graphic novel slash comics media Wendy by Walter Scott who Mm. is also just like a falling down mess and who it feels so good to go on the journey with her because when she has these moments of grace you feel included in them yeah definitely I don't think he ends the movie a good person Mm -hmm. I think he ends the movie a slightly changed person which opens the door to maybe being better Yeah. And just like, I don't know, we need so much more media on what growth looks like. And I do feel like with the sort of wild explosion of kinds of mid-budget TV shows that we've seen in the last few years, like it feels more possible to make media on that trajectory. And I know that there's been some, but yeah, I love that this is him growing on an attainable scale. I'm tired of movies about people who already basically make good decisions, learning to make even more of them. It's not relatable to me. <laughs> and I like that. The, yeah. I like that this person just makes bad decisions because they hate themselves. Like that's yeah. fucking relatable. Why else would you do it? <laughs> you know, it's so it, it really as a motive covers all of your bases. And I hadn't thought about what you were saying about him also using sex this way but that goes so well with what you were saying that like he's using sex as a way to kind of get outside of himself and numb the way he feels and in this case he's like oh i actually want to have this feeling yes yeah and i love oh god i love that yeah i I, there's something again there's like not much relatable about like the indiscretions he involves himself in because they are they are kind of like uh many and in a lot of ways over the top and sometimes like i have i have people in my family who make the amount of bad decisions he makes and you're Mm -hmm. like how are you still alive in your 60s dumb luck just truly i'm like every day i'm like if i make the wrong decision it's all gonna be over if that sawzall had been an inch to the left But I, you know, again, like I find relatable that his primary hurdle isn't any of the decisions. It's like at the core for reasons that we kind of learn along the way, again, not because of like a great speech he gives, but we just pick up these little things from the, from his past. Mm-hmm. He has never learned to love himself. Mm-hmm. He's never learned that he is valuable in any particular way and he treats himself accordingly. And then in the trajectory accidentally sees himself through the eyes of other people and considers that like maybe it's worth putting a little effort into loving himself uh, along with the people that love him 
What I want to know, and I want to, I don't know if bad Santa faces this problem, but I know I do, is like when people love you and are like showing you who you are when you like look at yourself in their eyes, like what do you do if you're like, I believe you on everything else, but not this. You are simply wrong about it. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, what that whole, and I know what exactly what you're talking about is mm-hmm. when, you know, you're like, well, I'm glad you see me in all these ways and you're great and you're wise and lovely and I love you, but you're fun. You're raw. Clearly you're blind in the same way I am. If yeah. you, if you see me in that way and God, I'd be genuinely curious to know what people's resolve for that is or solve for that is you know what actually helps me a lot yeah please write in send a self-addressed stamped postcard (laughs) (laughs) oh my god the saces of my youth send us a sace (laughs) to scruff mcgruff chicago illinois 60652 but something that helps me personally and i bet maybe helps other people too potentially is like I love it when I feel like somebody like really sees like something kind of small, but that feels like very central to me and kind of celebrates it. You know what I mean? That those moments. Yeah, I do. Totally. Those feel the best. Yeah, those do feel the best. For example, I once showed not even the whole movie, but just the opening credits of the Warriors to our friend Jamie Loftus, who said, you love movies with sweaty boys running around. (laughs) That's the truth. And I do. (laughs) It is the truth. That's part of your thing. Yeah. And in moments like that, you're like, I have to trust this person because they actually know who I am and they haven't. Because I think part of the distrust for me is having too many relationships, including with my parents, where someone had constructed an imaginary child to love and then would get mad at me when I behaved in ways that revealed that I was not the fake child that they had invented. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And they're like, who is this? They they look at you like a changeling. Yes. What'd you do with the child that I constructed in my brain? And you're like, I'm going to flip your car over, bitch. (laughs) But right. This this thing that is something we have to deal with and kind of the cultures we have around families that like you don't get what you ordered. You just get what you get and you have to learn how to love that person and help them to grow up. And I guess I would also say just generally that like if you have difficulty giving or receiving love in any way, then you're not alone in this. And I really do think that that Santa is a Christmas movie and making people feel less alone in their baggage. Yeah, I agree. And I think it does it better than many, not that it's a competition, but I think it does it as well, if not better than many, like kind of like celebrated big C Christmas movies. This is unfair of me because I have never seen it. So like, maybe it's amazing. But whenever I think of like, pointless stupid loud insipid christmas movies i don't want to watch i think of christmas with the cranks and just (laughs) that the trailers that they would run on tv were just i feel like it was like was jamie lee curtis in that i I hope she she wasn't ah that's so sad or maybe jane (laughs) Malcolm in the middle but um I guess think of like Tim Allen probably like sliding really fast on some ice being like whoa you know i guess i don't I don't need pointless merriment. I don't make myself merry and I can't afford to make idle people merry. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I gravitate much more towards a Christmas movie that has a darkness. Yes. Which, as you pointed out, it's a wonderful life, a movie I do really love. And boy, is it better without all the commercials is fundamentally a movie about suicide. Right. 
Right. And it's a movie about, you know, like actually looking that in the face and like giving a good case for staying alive. And we we really don't it's we don't really talk about that that much around it. It's just it's so acknowledged as a classic that we don't, you know, and based on the time when it came out, like Jimmy Stewart was a World War II veteran. I feel like there's a resonance there. Sure. Absolutely. It's like you. (laughs) Yeah, you just you came back and you've seen some shit. And all these little poppets are gazing up at you and depending on you. And all you want to do is, you know, you just don't you don't think you can take care of them. And it's the sort of. Yeah, it's a wonderful life kind of goes with Die Hard. And then it's about kind of finding your way as a parent. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, we know that Sherman Merman has a father who is in jail for embezzlement. Who, in your view, is the daddy? Hmm. I'm just going to say Lauren Graham because this is a tiny and fairly thankless role and she does fantastic stuff with it and I just love her in this and I also love that when she has sex for the first time with Bad Santa her car is in front of the bar not in back of the bar (laughs) just like full like right just right there she does not care she's very confident (laughs) That scene looks almost exactly like the scene that we see in It Follows, the like car sex <laughs> scene from that. So it's a nice. It's just a, it's a, a classic American automobile really has a vibe, you know? It really does. Um, I love her in this. I like, even though yeah. the she's not given a whole lot to work with, like what she brings to the yeah. role, I think is really, really great. Like that feels like a real person. Like she yeah. doesn't feel like she's doing like a parody of like someone who would sleep with someone at Santa, uh, sleep with a Santa uh, who just came to yeah. the bar. Like she feels like a fully realized character. Yeah, she really she brings like so much real warmth and like presence and substance to the role. And it is like somehow like is this very sweet scene when like Billy Bob is like pulling at like the string of her panties when (laughs) Bobby Hill comes in to give him a pickle covered in blood you know it just is it's his blood pickle you know yeah you know like kids do (laughs) I I, you know this is so on the news but I just I'm gonna pick Billy Bob in this case Mm -hmm. I know like when I originally saw it and he says, I'm going, I need to go and get something after he successfully gets through the safe. And he's going and he's looking at the elephants and he doesn't remember which one. It's so funny that he's like, which one is it? And it's like, just take two elephants. Like, <laughs> he's like, is it a purple or a pink one? Just take, you just robbed, you just stole so much money. Just take two elephants. Very few of us possess truly global intelligence. I love his, it's hard to change. And he yeah. changes a little bit. And again, it's like such a specific and like predictable turn. But when it happens each time, I'm like, oh, that's so fucking great that he's yeah. bringing the kid his present. Bad Santa is really Wendy for boys. <laughs> again, there's going to be a handful of people that are like, hell yeah. Yeah. Alex, you got it. Have you read Wendy? Only things that you've shared. Only like uh, okay. when you when you send pictures of panels and stuff. I'm going to get you the, the Wendy trilogy for Christmas. I'm fully in. It's my hot holiday gift recommendation. Wendy, Wendy's Revenge, Wendy Master of Art. It's perfect. I love it. I look forward to it. Well, thanks for doing this with me. Merry Christmas. Thank you. I'm so happy we did this. Merry Christmas, you wonderful old building and loan. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, everyone, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a Feelings podcast about movies. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing this episode. We adore you, Miranda. You're the best. I'm so glad that you are a part of this team. Thanks to y'all for listening. Thanks to Fresh Lush for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet. Thank you to founding producer Carolyn Kendrick for helping keep this whole thing organized. Thanks for supporting us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. You make the show possible. Thanks for finding us on social media. Thanks for getting in touch. Thanks for letting us know how you are doing. We're so honored and flattered that we get to do this whole thing with you. And if you want to know what we will be talking about next week, uh, check out the movie Entrapment. It's another just me and Sarah episode in which she shares a movie that was very meaningful to her as a kid. (laughs) We really unpack that. All right. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate you. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. <laughs>